We turn again to the uh, prophecy of Hosea. It was going to be three, but it'll be four. So this is our third uh, study of Hosea, and uh, chapter 2 and verses uh, 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. We're considering the amazing love of God for his defiant and loveless people. And we are seeing how it was made real to Hosea and his people, how they grasped it, how their emotions were brought to the theology as they were told of the marriage of Hosea, the holy man of God, and Goma, who was uh, an unfaithful wife. And the first point I want to make is that God's love is simply breathtaking. One of the most frightening and appalling things you can see in another Christian or in your own heart is uh, to take for granted the love of God. It happens. You know, we can sing this lovely gospel hymn and its words are, I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me. And then we sing in the chorus of that hymn, Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. And yet we can sing it so matter of fact. Our minds wandering about uh, many other things. Uh, we repeat the words with as little conviction as if we were singing one of the Beatles songs. She loves you, yay, yay, yay. Why is it that professing Christians, 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 are not moved by the amazing love that God has for them? And one reason is that we don't read the Bible properly. We read the prophecy of Hosea, and we read ourselves into the story, as, as we say. You know, when you see the word sinner in, in the Bible, you say, ah, that's me. When you see uh, the word Christian in the Bible, or disciple, or follower of Jesus, you say, ah, that's me. And we read the prophecy of Hosea, and we enter that story. But the role that we choose for ourselves is the role of Hosea, the prophet. He's the servant of the Lord, and uh, well, I'm a servant of the Lord, too. And so I'm always the hero when I'm reading. We put ourselves in that role and then the problems start. We begin to think, how could the Lord have asked Hosea to take up such a demanding relationship, such an immoral relationship? God would never ask me to do something like that. And immediately then we are perplexed and we're on the wrong track. And difficulties arise because we've identified with the hero. Are we expected to, to keep loving Goma and have her back when she's lived for a year in the red light area and slept in the gutter and done tricks for men for a few shekels all these months? So we've taken our stand with holy Hosea. And so then uh, we've got a moral problem. That's our first error. We're not Hosea. 
We're not prophets. There's no prophets in the world today. We are Goma. And there are many Gomas in the world today. And as you read this story, after identifying with her, then everything changes. We can't see the problems once you identify with Goma because your eyes are red with tears and you can't focus properly. We've insisted that this approach to the story of Goma is to see sin up close and personal. And also we are to see the love of God in the same way, up close and personal. Love wasn't God sort of entering into a contract, taking some paper and signing a few forms and then he was in a relationship of love with us. It was never his, uh, his job to take uh, his stamp and, and wet it and then stamp forgiven on our application form for heaven. It was not his automatic response to the good things we'd done. We passed the magic 75% figure. And so he was obligated then to open the gates of heaven and save us. We know it wasn't like that. We know that sin has contaminated the best things that you've ever done. The care for the needy child, the needy wife. Our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Nothing we've done isn't untouched by sin. And God needs nothing from us at all. And the best things that we've done need to be forgiven, like the worst things that we have done. Sin is not uh, falling short of your own high standards once in a while. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. That's the standard. Uh, And God in love comes, and God's love saves us. And that's the wonder of the gospel. There was nowhere God wasn't prepared to go. To become incarnate. To climb the hill of Golgotha, carrying a cross and allowing men to nail him to a cross. God, God was prepared to do that. There were no limits to his grace. There's nothing that God refuses to do that we should be his forevermore. God did not even spare, refuse to spare his, his own only begotten son. To serve dark people, fallen people, corroded, corrupted people, like we are. The God who had creation, this is the who brought all things out of nothing by a fiat, by a word of command. And his power wasn't stretched when he scattered the stars of the Milky Way and the vastness of, of space. It didn't tax him to organize everything 
in space or on this planet so that we, we feel at home. We feel at home in looking at the moon and the sun and uh, in relating to the ocean depths and uh, to space and to the animal and living world. His plan took everything into consideration. He planned and designed it all and did it in the twinkling of an eye. Well, do you plan? How is your sock drawer? Is that well planned? How organizes your desk? It's chaos. How organized are your plans for Christmas now? Just uh, less than four weeks away. You say, I haven't started yet. Here's a God who organizes the whole cosmos. He micromanages stuff we don't know exists. God knows all of us. God knows this congregation. He knows the, the angel of the congregation. That is the ethos of every individual congregation. He knows the thoughts and longings and needs of every single one of us. And he knows it with love for every single one of us. And he works everything that we've touched during this past week or everything that has touched us. He has worked it all for our good. Every cog, every mesh is synchronized in every piece of the machinery of redemption, so that in the end it's, it's all holy to the Lord. Everything in our lives, even the bells on the hoofs of the horses, they are holy to the Lord. It's elementary for God to do that. The tinkling of a bell to his glory. He organizes all. He just speaks. In creation, that's what he does. He speaks, and it is done. He commands. All things hold fast. The universe is made by a word. He just says it. But for redemption, ah, it's different. When he deals with our sins and their shame and their consequences, it's different. A word, a command, a fiat, a decree. No. That alone could not do it. For you, he couldn't say, forgiven, and it's forgiven. One moment we are utterly indifferent to God. Quite hostile, and that goes on and on. For three score years and ten, we lock God out of our lives. And then we breathe our last. And then what happens? Wow, heaven, glory. Jesus, the angels, all holiness, all perfection. He simply spoke and we were made perfect and ready for heaven. No, no, my friends. That could not be done. He couldn't just welcome you with your huge ego and yourself and your contempt for him and his son, Jesus Christ, and his laws and his righteousness. He couldn't merely will you into heaven and speak and transform you from being a relentlessly indifferent person to being someone who loved him and longed for him and wanted to be like Jesus more than anything else. He couldn't do it just by a word. There was a price to pay. And he paid. He paid. That price, it started with the incarnation. 
our God contracted to a span, the densest heavy atom of deity with all its attributes. That micro atom of the whole deity was joined to the egg of Mary, two natures, divine and human, came together in one indivisible person, irreversibly and permanently. That God-man, today at the right hand of God, is the incarnate Son. And he is the one who paid your redemption price. He came from glory with its peace and its joy and its mutual delight and the peace that there is in heaven. And he came into a world where there's murder and crucifixion and blasphemy and women are stoned and babies are exposed. He came into our low condition. He came and joined a peasant family. His father made doors and posts. And he helped his father. And he slept with his brothers. And he remained almost totally unrecognized and anonymous for 30 years. God's necessary holy hostility to all that's nasty and cruel and mean and contemptible had to be removed from us. Every atom of unbelief and indifference and lust and pride and cruelty had to be taken away. The anger of God towards it had to be propitiated. He came. He came to do that work for us. He came as the Lamb of God. And he took away our sin. He stands in the forsakenness of our rebellion and corruption because he loved us. He loved us. And he bore our sins in his own body on Golgotha. And without that sacrifice, there could be no pardon. There could be no open door into heaven. There could be no well done, good and faithful servant. There could be no forgiveness in the teeth of the astonishment of the angels who watched the whole machinery of redemption being set up and the wheels starting to turn as he had to go to Jericho. And he says to a sinner there, come down Zacchaeus, for I must stay with you. In the teeth of the perplexity of his friends who would never choose such a man to join their company. In the teeth of his own longing that there would be another cup and not the cup of suffering and anathema that he had to take. Jesus drank it. Jesus took the cup. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God in love did that for us to his son. Because he loved us and his son loved us. I think a sense of the love of God then is essential in, uh, in everything you're going to do this week. There's got to be, um, this cordial has to be added to the water of life. To sweeten it all. The fragrance of the perfume of the love of God makes every smelly task sweeter.
I can't see how there can be any true heartfelt obedience unless the love of God is something wonderful to you. There are obediences, aren't there, that are worked out by a routine. Prayer at four in the morning, and then eight in the morning, and then two in the afternoon, and six, and uh, vows of silence, and so on. There's obedience that's born of fear. There's an obedience born of pride. There's an obedience born of church-centeredness or institution-centeredness. But they are shallow obediences. They're flawed obediences. They're sub-Christian. It can please men and please your conscience, but it doesn't please God. What an appreciation of the extraordinary love of God for us is to change us from the inside, to change these cold affections, to change the dispositional complex that's there in us. He loved me. He gave himself for me. And I respond in love to his good and perfect will. And that is what sustained the Apostle Paul. Say the greatest Christian is the Apostle Paul. And there he is shipwrecked and traveling and uh, in perils with robbers and stoned. Confronting churches and individuals that have turned against him. Locked up. Asking, can you bring a blanket? It's so cold here in prison. Uh, Can you bring me something for my mind? Can you bring a parchment and a book for me to read? Preaching in synagogues, facing the hostility there, and speaking before kings, defending the faith, never giving up, never stopping, never stopping praying, never stopping talking and helping. What, What was the reason for it? It was the love of Jesus Christ for him. And he was so conscious of that. That love constrained him. It just drove him on. It was the motor inside him that kept him going. He loved me ceaselessly. He loved me personally. He loved me totally. So nothing I can do is too costly or is too great a price for me to pay. Um, Paul would have laid down his life and probably did. And would have laid down seven lives if God had asked him to do so. So uh, a consciousness of the love of God for what had been an evil persecutor. Who just rubbed his hands with glee as jagged stones crushed the skull and the ribs and the stomach. And killed Stephen, the first martyr. Changed him. Transformed him, elevated him, nobled, ennobled him. And hundreds of thousands have have been the same. And Keith, sitting in the congregation here, starts to have a stir. And Africa is laid on his heart. And Kenya is laid on his heart. And he came back a week ago. After giving 40 years of his life, traveling all over Kenya and planting churches and preaching of Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus. That's the explanation of the change in a mere Methodist. The love of Christ changed him. And that's always the reason why the gospel spreads and uh, why it's not spreading in Abba as it should because my love for the Lord isn't as powerful and as strong as it should be. That's the reason. So, we're telling the world that the love of God is an impossibility. 
We're telling the world that the love of God is an outrage. We're telling the world that the love of God is breathtaking. And now I want to just describe that love to you in this next section and tell you that it's sovereign and undeserved and sacrificial. It's a sovereign love. God took the initiative in planning the betrothal of uh, Hosea and Goma. It was not, you understand, it was not that uh, God took three of the most beautiful women, like the search in uh, Persia uh, brought um, Esther as a beautiful woman, and she was sent to Xerxes to be uh, his possible bride. And he chose her because she was gorgeous. It was not like that. Um, It was not like that with Hosea. He didn't choose. God, God chose for him. And he chose a particularly unsuitable woman. One, two. Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. One, three. So he married Goma. He He obeyed. He who was the mouthpiece and spokesman of God obeyed God and did what God required of him. God determined that this was to be so and for him, then, God could say nothing wrong. Now, that sovereignty of God in, in determining these things comes through very powerfully in the second chapter of the prophecy of Hosea. I wonder if there is another chapter in the Bible that has as many occurrences of a certain phrase on the lips of God. And that phrase is, I will. I will. I will. Chapter 2. I counted them. And I counted 22. And uh, there are other statements of God which uh, you could put I will in front of as well. So it might be uh, many more than that. The I wills at the beginning of chapter 2 are I wills of warning and of judgment. But the I wills at the second half are I wills of grace. They are like, you know, the the groom stands there and then uh, I give a knowing look to the organist, uh, her uh, father and she are standing at the door and then they start the, the, the bridal music and down she comes. Down she comes and they stand there lost in love for one another. And I ask him, will you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? I will, he says. Words of love and grace, he speaks. And so God speaks in chapter 2, in verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And then the Lord speaks again in verse 23 and he says of the seed of Goma, I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. It was a sovereign love. God initiated this love which started so unpromisingly. Hosea knew 
what Gomer didn't know at the beginning of just how wretched a life she would live. So it's a sovereign love. It's an absolutely undeserving love. You know, who do you take, you fellas, who do you take for your bride? Well, you will take as your bride someone whose form and figure and face and character is fair. She is fair. She has a beauty in your eyes. You are drawn to her. There's a growing attractiveness. You speak to her and you enjoy being with her and uh, you have an ardor for her. You will take her alone to be your wife until death us do part, you say. You love her that much. You make a public covenant with her and with nobody else. All right? So that's the covenant love. Who is it that God loved? Well, you all know John 3.16, don't you? God loved the world. And he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for her. Now, the word world in the Bible is not a numerical concept. You don't magnify the infinite and immeasurable love of God by saying it's this big that he loves the seven billion people who live on our planet. You don't praise a competitor in the strongest man in the world competition on on television by saying he can hold an acorn in the palm of his hands. You shrink the love of God when you call out a finite number. Seven million, seven billion, you say. He loves them. That shrinks the love of God. The world in the Bible is not an arithmetic concept at all. The world in the Bible is a moral and an ethical concept. This is how it is defined in the Bible. You hear it, First uh, John 3.15. Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he does, doesn't come from the Father, but comes from the world. Now that is an accurate description of Goma. Isn't it? The cravings of a sinful woman. The lust of her eyes. The boasting of what she has and what she does. And yet we are told in John chapter 3 and verse 16. God loved the world. What we are forbidden to love. Because it's the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. God loved it. We are told. And so loved it that he gave his own son. That his son should deliver us from the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. He loved the world prodigally. He loved the world unimaginatively, excessively. He loved what contradicted all he was. He loved it not with a love of complacency, but with a saving love, a redeeming love, 
a love that would deliver us from sin and all its forces forever. He loved her so much that he sent his son into the world for her. The pure, the holy, the blameless, the happy, the blessed Jesus. He sent him to the cross, to the condemnation and the darkness. He sent him there that we may never be there. But that we might be saved from the world by his precious blood. So we see something of Gomer's being loved by Hosea as the world is loved by God. Or we see it again in uh, Jesus and his love for the church. Ephesians 5, 25, 26, 27. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present to himself as a radiant church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. So here, there, what do we see there? What do we see there? The passage we read in wedding uh, ceremonies again. Uh, what do we see about the people that Christ saw, that were on Christ's heart, that he was uh, carrying up the hill of, of Golgotha for us? Uh, what was he? She wasn't holy then. She needed to be made holy. She wasn't clean. She wasn't radiant. She wasn't blameless. She had to be made all those things. That's why he loved her. He loved in order to change her. She needed changing like a baby needs changing. It's nappy, it's stinking. And the baby needs to be changed. And so here is the bride. The bride needs to be changed. She needs inward change. She needs outward change. Here is the picture. The, the groom is waiting here. And the organist starts playing the bridal march. And here? Here? Who is this? Who is this coming down the aisle? This hag? Stained? Stinking, wrinkled, blemished. He's, oh, strong and powerful and, and erect. Handsome and beautiful and loving. Waiting for her. And he sees her. And here she comes. Down the aisle. You see her. And he beams with delight. As he looks at her. And he loves her and he nudges his best man and he says to him, aren't I the luckiest man in, in all the world? She's going to be mine forever and ever. Never a more loving husband in the whole universe. Someone who would supply all her needs and protect her and be patient and forgiving towards her, laying down his life for her and changing her so that she would, in the end, become like him. As beautiful, as holy, as sinless as he is, that she would become the Rose of Sharon. She would become the Lily of the Valley. Gomer, as beautiful as Hosea. When did uh, Jesus Christ fall in love with Gomer? Well, it was love at first sight. And when was his first sight of her? Well, it was at the beginning. 
Before all things were made at the beginning, he knew all about her and he loved her. There never was a time when he didn't love her. He'd seen the file on her, he'd seen her personal CV, the things she was so ashamed of, the things that she had done. He knew her, he still loved her. On that day of creation, when our first parents were made, he loved one who would come from them. When they rebelled and fell, he loved her. When Gomer was first born and took her first breath, he loved her. And when in her teenage years she took an inordinate interest then in, in things that were defiling, he loved her. He loved her. And when he gave her the magnificent Hosea to be her husband, he loved her. And when she fell, he loved her and kept loving her and wouldn't let her go until he delivered her by Hosea's love for her. That's what God has done for us. The wonderful love of God for us. It was a lifelong love for her. When he left heaven, he came with a mission motivated by his love for her. When he became incarnate and breathed his first breath and cried his first cry in the stable of Bethlehem, he loved her. On his journey from Bethlehem to Golgotha, he loved her quite deliberately. He thought of her. He longed to see her when the soldiers whipped him, when they punched him in the face, when they drove nails through his hands and his feet. He had Goma on his heart all that time. Moment by moment, he made a choice of the shame. And he was doing it because he loved her like he loves you. He had you on his heart then. And in that last week when he was in Jerusalem and he was heavy and he was not so talkative to his disciples and he was a bit of a loner and they said to one another, what's wrong with the master? He's so incommunicative. What's the terrible burden he seems to be bearing? They never guessed that his burden was Goma or that they were his burden. They didn't understand when he said to them, Son of man must suffer. He must be crucified. He must die. There was no moment in his life when he forgot Goma. No moment when he ceased loving Goma. She was always on his heart. He was going to redeem her from her guilt. He was going to clothe her with all the merit and all the eloquence and all the beauty of his righteousness. He was going to do that. He loved her with an unceasing love. It was a self-sacrificing love he had for her. He spent his last hours in the darkness of that foreboding. And as a lamb before her shearers is dumb, he didn't scream and yell and fight as he climbed the hill of Calvary. And quietly he shed his blood for her. He didn't die like you and I die. We want to die and we want our loved ones to be there. We want to hold their hand and we want the minister to come and, and pray and give us scriptures that are precious to us. He tasted the bitterness of death. He tasted the loneliness. My God, why have you forsaken me? He did it because he was so conscious of 
Goma and her needs and oh he longed to deliver Goma he wanted Goma to be like him he wanted Goma to be with him his bride in heaven forever and ever and it was necessary for him to die for let me explain it wasn't that God saw the, the baby born and the wonder of that incarnate his own son and a man in one person and because of that he said Goma you're forgiven it wasn't like that or he saw the whole life of Jesus and he saw his humility working for 30 years in Nazareth and helping dad and his mother running errands growing in favor with men and the whole beauty of the incarnate growing son of God and God said because he looked at Jesus in all those years you are my beloved son so I'll forgive Goma it wasn't like that or he saw him in his life then uh, mothers bringing children to him and his sweet answers to people who uh, objected to him and uh, his falling down on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples and uh, because God saw all that he was so pleased with all of that he said uh, uh, I'll forgive Goma. It wasn't like that. It wasn't because of incarnation. It wasn't because of perfection in humility that God forgave you your sins. It was because of his death. It was because he shed his blood. It was because he became the Lamb of God. It was because Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that you were forgiven, that you were pardoned. That was the only reason. The only way you can come into the presence of God and, and speak and look at God is because you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were cleansed, you were washed because he gave his life for you. It was because God made him a curse that you've had these blessings. The last thing I want to say to you that it's not enough to tell the world about God's love. You've got to live before the world as ones that have been won and loved by, by God. Now, um, if I were going to be a prophet, um, I'd want to be a prophet who saw God high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. And I being overwhelmed at the sight of God. If I was going to be a prophet, I would want to be like um, Elijah, who's brought a, a, a dying little boy by a Shunammite, and I would give him life and would give him back to his mother. If I were a prophet, I would be like John the Baptist preaching, and all of Jerusalem and Judea and everyone in their thousands coming to hear me preach. I would be that kind of prophet if I could choose to be a prophet. And then I would have something to tell people about and I could write a book about it. And I could go to America to big meetings and I could tell them in America about this funny little country called Wales and how I was a prophet and did these remarkable things in Wales. Jose, I didn't get that. He didn't get a resurrection. 
He didn't get a floating axe set. He didn't get fire from heaven consuming the water in the trench that he had dug around the sacrifice. You read Ezekiel and you see the commissioning vision that he gets in chapter 1. And My, the wheels within the wheels and the great figures that are there, half men and half beasts, and they're speaking and the angels that come to him. You think of the experience that Isaiah had when he became a prophet. A, a remarkable experience. He got up that morning as he'd got up every other morning. He had breakfast and washed as he'd got up and had breakfast every other morning. And he uh, went out and walked to the temple as he walked to the temple every other morning. It was just like any other day. And he went into the temple that day and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple. And his life was never the same. And he heard the voice of God saying, Who will go for me? And he said, Here am I, send me. And that sight of God killed his self-esteem and killed his self-righteousness and killed his self-entitlement. He didn't think of any achievements that he'd had as a young prophet in the first five chapters of Isaiah preaching and people saying, oh, a new prophet has come. He's a lovely young man called Isaiah. He didn't think like that at all. He met God in a face-to-face encounter and he died. He died psychologically. He died spiritually. God demolished him so that God could rebuild him. And it was a painful encounter. And God, by that painful encounter, gave him backbone and humility and usability. And he had a new understanding of God and faith in God. He was ready to say to God, if you want me to preach in the teeth of a hostile and indifferent congregation, if you want me to preach and they don't hear and they don't see, and they don't obey anything I say, well, then that's my mission that you've given to me. Here am I, send me. No ifs. And so we feel so sorry for Hosea that God didn't give him the experiences that Elijah had, or John the Baptist had, or Ezekiel had. Hosea had something more than they all had. Hosea had Goma. And none of the other prophets had a wife like he did. Hosea had a wife that drove him five times a day in prayer to God. His marriage crushed him, but his marriage reformed his whole life. It was a marathon, his ministry. It was a long haul of increased usefulness. He lived with concern. He lived with pain. He lived with three children who often would cry and say, when is mummy coming home? He had a ministry as a single parent. And his relationship with Hosea taught him something about the relationship God in love has with us. So that he could get through to people. He could touch their hearts. He could move them. He could motivate them. And they saw the love of God as they'd never seen it before. And it's not enough for us to know the scriptures and know the catechism answers. Because God resists the proud. 
but God gives grace to the humble. And that is life. So why is your life so hard? It is a hard life, isn't it? If you're a mother, it's hard. Tomorrow's going to be hard. If you're a working man, it's hard. If you're a student, there are deadlines and exams, it's hard. If you're an old person, it's hard. If you're single, it's hard. If you're ill, it's hard. People are difficult. Relationships are difficult. Situations are difficult. There are brutal disappointments. There are handicapped children. There's dementia. There's the death of young husbands and young wives. What's going on? Tell you what's going on. God is at work. God is at work to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is demolishing the old you. He is bringing your schemes of earthly joy to an end that you might, you might find joy in him. God's in charge. He's in charge of my life. He's given me grace to live with these things. He's helping me. I can't get by without him. He, he knows all about me, my, my petty complaints and my grumbles. He loves me still. He's, he's saving me. I'm in the process of being redeemed now. By God, you, you can't boast about an Isaiah 6 experience or resurrections or floating axe heads or the cleansing of a famous general from his leprosy. You never saw wheels within wheels. But I guarantee you, you've had your goma. You've had your goma. What's driven you to God? You, you've had that. Which means you say, oh Lord, just help me now. I can't get by. I can't do this without you. You find your goma. Jesus had to go through Samaria because there was a woman there. A Samaritan woman. And he had to find her. And he had to speak to her and show her all things that she ever did. There are Samaritan women in Aberystwyth and Gomas in Aberystwyth. You find them. Let me find them. Let me find them. Let me love them with a holy love. Like Hosea loved Goma. Lord, bless your word to us now, we pray. Help us. Help us to find our Gomas. Help us to be thankful to thee that you've spared us until now. In Jesus' name, amen.